All right, joining us on, on uh, Fox and Klein is uh, Daniel DiMartino, the U.S. spokesman of Vente Venezuela, a conservative party opposed to uh, Maduro, and a contributor for Young Voices. And we welcome in right now. And Daniel, welcome to Fox and Klein. Thank you for having me. And Daniel, um, you know, you and I got connected through Young Voices, which is, you know, a great organization kind of connecting people that, you know, uh, want to speak on the issues of today and everything that's going on in the world. Um, you know, tell, tell us, you know, I've done some reading on it, but tell the audience a little bit about Vente uh, Venezuela, the organization that you just spoke for. Yeah, Vente Venezuela is a party that was founded uh, about five years ago by Maria Corina Machado. She founded this party because Venezuela's opposition to Maduro, even even though obviously there's, there's a huge majority of the population that opposes Maduro, all those political parties were still on the center-left. They were okay. either social democrats or they were like the democrats in the U.S. So Bente Venezuela was founded with the goal of providing an alternative to the traditional establishment of political parties, one that would promote values like economic freedom, like the free market, uh, values of political tolerance and social tolerance. Um, and we think that it's the only alternative to make Venezuela a prosperous country again. Absolutely, and, and it's, you know, it, it, it's kind of scary, you know, it's very scary actually that, you know, the things that you went, um, you know, that you went through in Venezuela um, are kind of creeping into our, you know, um, our national conversation in the United States where, you know, socialism is not supposed to be, you know, anywhere near the conversation. Um, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. You know, you have a unique story um, about, you know, your journey through life and kind of where you are right now if you want to let them know kind of your background, where you come from, and how you ended up where you're at right now. Yeah. Uh, I was born in Maracay, which is a medium-sized city, about a million people in, in central Venezuela. That was in 1999, and I lived my whole life under the same socialist regime. It was normal for me to make lines in the supermarkets every week for an hour or more. That was very average just to buy basic staples. It was very normal for me not to find what I was looking for in the supermarket. Some weeks I wouldn't find flour, some weeks I wouldn't find milk. Uh, and as time progressed and the government implemented more and more socialist measures, the things that I couldn't find became many more than the things I could find. So rationing was, was really uh, a tough experience. And that is why I love America so much and, honestly, most free market societies that have choice, that have abundance in, in products in, in the supermarket, that have abundance in everything to choose from. And that is something that in Venezuela we were deprived of because the government imposed price controls, because the government increased the minimum wage so much that business was closed and that jobs were, were hard to find. And... Also, because the government implemented so many welfare programs supposed to help the poor, but the bankrupted our nation and led to hyperinflation. No, it, it, it's one of those things that, and, and I read this in your bio. Um, everyone can find uh, Daniel's, you know, in his work, and it's not me, DanielDMartino.com. Um, I'll tweet everything out, um, get all, all your links out there. But you know, uh, in your bio, one of the first things, like right at the end of, you know, kind of your about. Excuse me. The ending of the beginning of your about me was your experience in a socialist socialist country. You taught you that any country can go through what you did, and your goal is to stop it from ever happening again. 
And I find That's that right. extremely powerful, you know, in the basic sense, but also in a, you know, overall sense that it's, you know, incredible, you know, what you've gone through to get to this point. And just like you said, we have such an abundance of things here when that people take so much for granted when people like yourself and that are in countries run by the government or, you know, socialist dictatorships or whatever it may be, you know, they're dealing with things where their lives really are bad and they really do have things to complain about and things really are hard. And we have it so good here that it feels a little bit, and I'm, you know, I want to get your take on it, is that people have gotten so lax on the basic essentials of our world that they're missing, you know, the forest for the trees. Yeah. Well, look, uh, I've been three years in the United States in some care. I came here for college thanks to my university. that gave me an amazing scholarship, and that's why I'm here in this country. And I was in class today, coincidentally, and in my class somebody was commenting that a big problem in American society is that there's too much choice. <laughs> and I, I laugh because <laughs> that is completely the opposite of the problem. Like, I come from a society where we have no choice. Right. You know, how many millions of Venezuelans, how many millions of Chinese, of uh, Cubans, Russians, of so many people around the world would give everything to live in a country like this because of the choice that people have here. And, uh, and, and that's the American dream that America, so many people on Americans, and I think obviously we're seeing it a lot on the left um, and far left, is that they don't see the basic essentials of no one telling us what to do. We have the, the, you know, the freest speech laws in the entire world. You know, we have, you know, the basic essentials. We have the freedom to do, you know, what we want as we want, as long as we're not interfering with anyone else's, you know, this, you know, kind of like being. But it's, it's one of the things where we're so focused on so many dumb little things like what the president may have tweeted on a particular day or right now, like we can kind of transition into what's going on right now with, you know, Joe Biden and Ukraine and what's being exposed. It's an extremely frustrating for myself um, and a little bit about, about me, Daniel, is I've been, you know, a person who has voted Democrat up, uh, you know, through the 2016 election, uh, about halfway through 2017-ish, or no, last year, maybe 2018, started not really relating to the left anymore, just kind of a sour taste in my mouth, just felt like I was getting gaslit a little more started listening a little bit to more conservative voice just to hear what the other side had to say. And for me, it was, a, it was an eye-opening experience for me. And this thing that's going on right now with Biden, Ukraine, and Trump, it's incredibly frustrating as someone that I consider myself down the middle is anyone coming in my boat right now, is that everyone is screaming impeachment for Trump on all of the things that are proven that Biden has done. And it's one of these things that it's fracturing you know, our country even more than we are right now. But it's extremely frustrating, and, and, you know, what do you think about that, this entire gaslighting that we're getting of impeach Trump based on a phone call that he had on verifiable information on Joe Biden? Well, well I, I read the transcript of the phone call, and I don't think that... Um, I, right, I thought the transcript was... That, 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 no. I, I, didn't, I didn't see anything that was overly problematic at all uh, compared to what other presidents have done. I don't think it's an something that, you know, merits impeachment. I think that impeachment has something that has been planned by half of the Democratic congressional uh, members since Trump became president. Uh, and the other half just thinks it's politically convenient to do it now, not because they really agree with it. Yeah, and, and you know, and as we all know, are people that have, you know, been paying attention, or, I mean, even if you haven't been paying attention to politics, you know, since 
you know, Trump took office, they've been trying to impeach him since. And if it's not one thing, it's another. And, you know, with the Mueller report, that gets released. That was a nothing burger, you know, for the most part. You know, most of the stuff that was damning in it was, you know, uh, you know, President Trump kind of, you know, being a loudmouth and things. And this stuff that's happening right now, it's almost as if, uh, they're looking for any little tiny thing to impeach him on because, and I think this kind of relates to the 2018 uh, midterms, is that they a lot of de- you know, candidates on the de- Democratic side ran on we're going to impeach Trump, and now that they you know have taken office and haven't done anything as a, with a Democratic-controlled House, they kind of need to follow through on that promise going into 2020. Do you think that's something that kind of holds life? I don't think they're going to do it. I also think that. Most Americans are not going to read any transcripts of the call. They probably, many of them already know what they think without reading it. And I don't think it's going to change not even one vote, perhaps. Uh, It's it's very unlikely. Most people are focused on their daily life. And the reality is that Americans are better off than they were uh, three years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. the Democrats are getting more extreme by the day. I, what I see from the Democratic side is honestly very concerning. Uh, free college, free childcare, healthcare, housing, right. uh, free jobs, wage increases, and that is just to name a few. Right, and, and you know, someone like myself who has been I consider myself a Democrat up till a certain point, and now I'm unaffiliated as an independent. But for me, like you said, it's getting more and more radical, and it's like in the debates and kind of the things leading up to, you know, the debates on the Democratic side is that it seems like each person is trying to one off or outdo the other. You know, we're going to do, you know, the 1%, you know, wealth tax uh, on the rich. Then it's going to be, we're going to be a 2% wealth tax on the rich. Okay, we're going to do this in free college. No, we're, now we're going to do free community college and, you know, university college, or whatever it may be. It, to me, the people that are paying attention that are kind of on this train of, yes, Socialism is great. It's democratic socialism, and I put democratic in, you know, air quotes because there's no such thing as democratic socialism. It's frustrating to see so many people fall in line behind this, and I think it's due in most part, um, and I think a lot of people agree, in due to their hatred of the president, just him being who he is. Yeah, it's it's completely it's completely based on, on just being against Trump. Um, but I think that that's what's going to happen in 2020, that people are going to see that the proposals of the Democrats are just incompatible with what America is. I mean, even free college can be destroyed by the simple fact that it actually benefits the rich more than the poor, because who actually goes to college and who pays the most for college are high-income Americans. Low-income Americans have so many scholarships, so many options. Uh, many of them don't even go, so the money that proposals like this would benefit to are actually rich Americans, not the poor. You know, free health care, free housing, all these things are just impossible for the government to, to fund, no matter how high taxes are. And what concerns me is that, is that if this is going to be implemented, and then they're not going to have the money to pay for it, are we going to do like in Venezuela, that the Venezuelan government start using the Federal Reserve to print money and create hyperinflation and destroy our economy? Yeah, it, it, it's really one of these things where I think there's going to be a whole lot, a whole block of people like myself in the middle of the country that come 2020, if it's an Elizabeth Warren versus a Trump, there's a lot of people that are in the middle that consider themselves old school Democrats, what the old party used to be, you know, like and considered myself, you know, very socially liberal, 
still to this day, is that there's going to be a whole block in the middle of the country that kind of wakes up or has been opened their eyes to what's going on and say, I'm going to vote one way to prevent another. And I think once people start being exposed and more information, you know, not more information so much coming out, but getting more educated on what socialism is, more people open their eyes. That's what happened with me in 2016 with Bernie. I was a Bernie supporter before I even knew what socialism was, and I understand why people can fall into that. Um, being young and, you know, being told, you know, we're going to pay for college, we're going to pay for your health, we're going to pay for this, I understand how it sounds so appealing because I was that in 2016. It sounded great. I was still going to school. Um, but, you know, I'm glad that I was able to have, like, a coming, you know, coming to senses moment where it's, you know, well, I'm not what I thought I was or my viewpoints aren't that, um, you know, for more words or less. You know, what I, what I wanted to kind of get into is, and this is an article that you shared today, um, Daniel. We're speaking again with Daniel DiMartino. He's spoke U.S. spokesman of Bente Venezuela, um, a party opposed to Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, also a contributor for Young Voices. Um, Daniel, um, in Venezuela, you shared an article that Nicolas Maduro, they're taking away private homes right now. Um, can you, what's going What's going on in Venezuela right now with Maduro doing this? Um, you know, to me, what's happening in Venezuela should just be one big Trump campaign ad for 2020 saying this is what you're voting for if you're voting Democrat. Um, what is going on right now in Venezuela? And more so, what is going on with, this, with Nicolas Maduro taking people's homes? Yeah, so... As many people know, uh, more than 4 million Venezuelans, like myself, have left Venezuela over the last three, four years. That is like 12% of the population, 15%, wow. which is crazy. Wow. But that means that all those people who had homes have left their homes and there's empty uh, housing in Venezuela, right? So the government wants to take away those empty houses and just give them away to their cronies um, for probably drug business, if you ask me, because the Venezuelan government has become a huge narco state. It's actually a main source of cocaine to the United States and to Europe. Uh, all of the cocaine that comes from Colombia is exported through Venezuelan uh, airports and ports through government channels. Um, so it's it's rapidly descending into an, anarch an anarchic state dominated by a mafia, which is the Nicolás Maduro regime. So these homes, the, the ones that are, and that, I mean, that is a shocking number, uh, Dan. I mean, that was, I mean, I, that's an eye-opening number, 12% of the population. Now you're saying 12% of the Venezuelan population has left within the last three to four years? That's right. And it's possible that it's an even higher number because that's just the official count of the United Nations, and it could be much more. Wow. Now, now, those homes, um, you know, it does seem, um, when you hear that, like, okay, people have abandoned their homes, um, you know, for a better life, obviously. Um, do you think, now, who owns those homes? Now, technically, those homes are still owned by the people who, now, now I don't know how it's, you know, set up in, in Venezuela. Now, how does that work? Do you know, people that have abandoned their homes, is there a certain time limit where it's no longer your home, or is it your home until someone seizes it from you, and that's basically what Maduro is doing? So... For example, my family, we sold our home because that was the only thing we could sell to, to have any money to leave our country. But many families did not sell their homes because they just could not, because they couldn't find any buyers. They left too late, and nobody wants to buy a home in Venezuela because nobody wants to move to Venezuela. Um, so all those people continue to own their homes and want to return to Venezuela once they cross Maduro regime falls. So Maduro wants to take away those homes so that those people cannot return back. 
supposedly he wants to give it away to people without homes, but he has already said that 20 years ago, Chavez did the same. He built homes for the poor, and what happened was that those homes either fell because the government didn't know how to buy, how to, how to build homes, of course. Um, there were in terrible conditions, worse than in the previous state where those people were living. Uh, and crime went up incredibly because mafias took over the, the government housing. So it is not an, an easy solution. Um, honestly, the, the only way to start rebuilding our country would be to take out Maduro and after that implementing free market policies like privatization, like uh, eliminating the price and currency control so that these four or five million Venezuelans like being outside the country can return to Venezuela we can rebuild our country and, and, and end the starvation and terrible economic crisis. Now, um, last thing um, on Venezuela, um, now obviously, you know, my heart goes out to everybody there and, like, people like yourself that have believed that, um, you know, I can only imagine having family or friends still there, you know, what people must be feeling. Um, just real quick, is there any movement on Juan Guaido, you know, the, the elected um, leader of Venezuela, is there any movement on getting Maduro out of power? What's like the current state of Venezuela uh, before we kind of like transition away from it? Yeah, the the latest thing that happened was that uh, it happened in the United Nations uh, summit framework. Uh, the country is part of the Rio Treaty, which is an inter-American defense agreement from the 1950s, agreed to invoke the treaty on Venezuela. Uh, and that gave a legal framework for the region to sanction Maduro, not just the United States, but other Latin American countries. Unfortunately, the Guaido government uh, is really not on the right path. They think that negotiating with the regime like they have done for the last nine months and like we have done in general with Maduro and Chavez for the past 20 years can work. And unfortunately, negotiating with terrorists has not worked in Venezuela, and that's why we've been 20 years under the same dictatorship, because they have nothing to gain from negotiating except time and except recognition from the international communities. So either the Juan Guaido government, uh, the, the legitimate government of Venezuela, either they change their strategy and request actual action from the international community, things like capture the drug kingpins, part of the Maduro regime, send special forces so that they can capture those people and scare everybody else in the government away, or or do stronger actions because sanctions and negotiations have not worked. It's it's really something that yeah it's it's unfortunate to see, but it's it's incredible in a way of just watching something you know uh, you know from afar break down like you know the way it is and seeing the pictures and the videos and just things that we're you know, and that's only the stuff that we're seeing. It's, uh, it's you know, disheartening to see it from here. Um, and it makes me fortunate. It makes, obviously, yourself who's come from there extremely fortunate to be here and live in the freest country in the, you know, uh, in the history of the planet. Um, I kind of want to uh, transition a little bit into, like, what you were speaking about with, like, the, um, something that you know a little, a little well, no, I'll say a lot more about, um, you know, economics and, like, the wealth tax and a lot of people on the left are, um, you know, pushing right now. Um, Daniel, tell us a little bit about the wealth tax, like what Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. I know um, Andrew Yang's spoken up uh, recently about it. Um, you know, I know that you're, uh, you're majoring in quantitative economics. Um, what exactly is this wealth tax that everybody's speaking about, and is it something that is even, A, you know, doable, or B, uh, you know, uh, 
not logical, um, like make sense. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't find the right word. Yeah, the the wealth tax, uh, in simple terms, is a tax on everything you own. So the value of your house, the value of your retirement accounts, the value of what you have in your bank account, the value of your car, of your sofa, and your, or you know, of your chairs, everything you have, you add it up, and then they take away a percentage of that every year. They make you pay that in taxes. Now, Elizabeth Warren is saying that it's only the the billionaires who are going to pay, or the millionaires. She wants to tax from people who own over over fifty million dollars. And she says that she's going to collect so many trillion dollars, you know, these huge figures that nobody can understand. Right. Is that the even, reality uh, things, is that... It doesn't, yeah. even, see, it doesn't the, the, even seem logical when you think about it from such a basic sense. You know, I'm not a quantitative economics expert in the least, or even in economics, but it doesn't even seem logical to think that you're going to raise that much, many billions or trillions based on taxing only the richest and X amount of percent. It really does seem wild. I'm, I'm sorry for cutting you off, guys. No, don't worry. The, the big problem here is that you might be able to value how much you own in a stock or how much you own in your car because those are things that are easier to value. But how do you value a private company that has never been bought or sold? How do you value a home that you have owned for the last 50 years or a huge mansion that you haven't traded in the market for over a decade? If there's no, there's no set price. So would the government come and put a value to everything you own? Would they go and inspect the tens of thousands of millionaires that live in America? Because it's tens of thousands. And, and assign a person to follow them and value everything they own? It's impractical, and it's, it's going it's to lead to a lot of evasion and people renouncing their citizenship to live. Absolutely, and I don't see how, the, how they don't realize that when people have a lot of money, usually they know how to get around paying all the taxes on that. I'm not saying everyone's a crook who's rich, but I don't understand how they say, okay, every dollar over, you know, say X amount, you know, but $50 million is a number that's used. Why don't they think that people take every dollar over $50 million and put it in the bank account offshore and avoid that type of thing? Or people, you know, I've heard, you know, people, whether it be commentators or, you know, whoever it may be, um, people just speaking on the issue where they say, if they're going to be a wealth, there's going to be a wealth tax, I'm going to move to another country. And then obviously, that's something that's happening with the state of California with their taxes being so much. All those people are moving to, to somewhere like Texas where there's no state tax, and that makes sense. And I do want to correct one, one thing. When I said Andrew Yang mentioned um, the wealth tax. He was criticizing um, Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, obviously, because um, and he said it, this is just a quote from a, um, just the title of an article. Andrew Yang says the wealth tax proposals from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren could be a disaster in practice. Um, obviously, that's something you agree with. And and. What is, like, your take, honestly, with the just the field of Democrats right now saying, like you said earlier, you know, free college, free tuition, uh, free this, we're going to give you tax credits for this, we're going to tax the rich. All of this spending increasing on, you know, free stuff, you know, in air quotes, again, free stuff, is it how, – how do they plan to get this message to the American people when it's a one-on-one -on -one them versus Trump and they're not just trying to, you know, get the nomination? Yeah, but first let me, let me say also that all this criticism of the wealth tax is not only based on theory, but it is based on the practice, uh, on the experience of European countries that tried wealth taxes, and almost all of them have repealed them over the last uh, 15 years because they didn't work, because it happened exactly what we were saying would happen. And a lot of people um, moved their money out of the country. Yeah. 
a lot of people moved the money out of the country. A lot of people just evaded the tax, and only the you know the law abiding paid it. Uh, less investment happened, so it was all bad. Now, Andrew Yang is completely writing his criticism, and I praise him for it on social media, um, and I think he's right on some of his takes. Now, I think on the general field, the Democrats that they're just up for increasing spending, for free everything. Most Americans want to have a more affordable college and more affordable health care, probably all Americans, right? But the federal government is already spending trillions of dollars in financing college and health care combined. That spending could be much, much, much better spent than it currently is. The United States currently has Medicaid, Medicare, Obamacare, CHIP, just to name four, the four main health care programs. Why does the government have to have so many healthcare programs for so many different types of people when there could be only one program to help just the poor and that's it? It will reduce bureaucratic costs. It will target the government aid into the people that really need it, not to just give free healthcare for everybody regardless. And it would save so much taxpayer dollars and therefore reduce your taxes. I think that most Americans can get behind that idea and much more than free everything. No, and I think that's an excellent point that, you know, and something that I, not that I, you know, that's something I haven't even considered. We do have Medicaid, like you said, Medicare, Medicaid, and Obamacare. Those are three health, you know, healthcare, you know, safety nets that we have. Why can't there just be one? I mean, that's obviously it's a very basic thing that people like yourself can just point out. Like we have all of these social safety nets. And now, do you think those social safety nets like Medicare, Medicaid, you know, where people, you know, don't end up working or like, you know, the, um, when you have, you know, when you're unemployed and working, you know, living off of the government, do you think that our social safety nets lead to this type of thing where people are just living off of the government and expect the government to just keep, you know, basically keep funding their lives while they don't, you know, a lot of people collect unemployment, you know, for example, and don't don't even try to get a job. You know, I'm not going to say a lot, you know, just, uh, you know, but there are absolutely people that get around that stuff and don't feel like working. Do you think our social safety program, you know, the programs that we have in place, I mean, I think it's kind of rhetorical, set this up, and do you see a day where, like, something like Medicare, Medicaid, you know, and, you know, having to work for your money even if you're unemployed, do you think that there's a day in the future where we don't have a Medicare, Medicaid, and all of these things? Well, I think that more than abuse is that the people who are in those programs are really victims of the program. I don't think anybody really wants to live on just, like, food stamps or, or Medicaid. I don't think it's a nice experience. I think that the, how the system is set up, that if they – start working, they lose all their benefits, makes them not work and leaves them trapped in those terrible, terrible government programs. So I am sure there will be a, a day within the next decade or two where those programs will be drastically reformed. And I'm not saying this because I, I know somebody, but because the, the budget picture shows that the me Medicare and Social Security specifically are going, their trust funds are going to run out of money in late 2020s and early 2030s. So when that happens, Congress is either going to have to cut Medicare or healthcare for seniors and, and, their, and their pensions drastically, or they're going to have to raise taxes. I think they're just going to revamp the system uh, completely, which is what needs to happen. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the more people uh, – are encouraged, like you said, to work and encouraged not to live off the government programs. You would think that that is everybody's goal, but like you said, it is, you know, a thing that some people can take for granted where even if you have a job, 
um, that this doesn't pay enough, and you need to live off those food stamps, expecting that to just be how it is, like, all the time. It kind of makes it seem like people just get lax in living off of the government, um, which, unfortunately, leads to so many problems. And, you know, if more people wanted to work, which I think right now with our unemployment where it's at, it's, you know, it's hard to find a, you know, it's much harder, it's harder to find a job right now because our unemployment is at such a, you know, a low rate. What do you think, as someone who studies, you know, economics, what is the state of our economy, like, right now, as in just a general sense? Like, you know, because me, as someone looking into it, say, you know, our stock market's at, you know, at all-time highs, our unemployment's at lows, the, you know, African-American unemployment is at an all-time low, you know, job, jobless claims, I believe, just went up for the first time in a bit, but they, they, were, at a, they were at, I think, a 40-year low for a while. What is the state of our economy right now in, you know, kind of a broad sense that someone that, doesn't pay attention so much every day that they could understand. How is the state of our country? Yeah, the, the economy is excellent. Um, there's really been very few times in, in history uh, where you can say that you can find a job wherever, whenever, no matter whoever you are. Right. Uh, and that's and today's one of those times. And I can I even tell you from recent college graduates who are my friends, the job offers and the salary amounts for starting jobs here in Indiana are going up very, very fast uh, in all professions. Now, I do think that there are very, very important threats and that might lead to a, a recession in the near future. And one of them is the trade war with China, and another one is uh, just the general global slowdown, especially from Europe. I think that the Europeans have didn't, never reformed their their economies or their budgets after the, the crisis, and now they're suffering from the same problems. Uh, they're overly regulated. They spend too much money. Uh, they have too much debt, and their economy is slowing, and that's affecting America. And then the tariffs in China have hurt America much more uh, than, than President Trump predicted. And unfortunately, if that policy doesn't change and the, there's a trade deal with China, then that might endanger his political future because a recession in 2020 is going to kill him. Now, now, and thank you, thank you so much for breaking all of that down with me. And I think it's important for for just people in the basic sense that don't pay attention to politics, you know, every single day. And I think that's something that a lot of people kind of miss as well is that people like yourself, myself, you know, uh, any type of political commentary, any type of, you know, person that pays attention to this on a daily basis, the majority of people aren't paying attention to this on a daily basis. What the president does does not affect them one bit. And, you know, a lot of the population isn't even on social media or Twitter or whatever it may be. So a lot of the loud voices on there aren't representing the whole population. But for me, it's in 2020, um, you know, I, I, I think when Trump steps back and just starts touting, you know, here's where our stock, you know, our, our stock market came under um, or went to under myself. Here's where unemployment went under myself. Here's where, you know, what countries started doing for us, whatever it may be. Um, one thing that I think could hurt him, though, are the tariffs. How much longer can these go on, do you think, um, to a point where it could end up hurting him in 2020? Does he kind of need to wrap up this? Or not wrap up. Do they need to try to escalate, you know, these trade talks faster before 2020, or how do you see the tariff things shaking out? He really needs to finish that this fall. Uh, there was a, a recent report, uh, a study by Moody's Analytica, that showed that the tariffs have so far destroyed almost a million jobs. Um, and it's not that 
um, you know, there's just a million jobs that were the certain total during Trump's administration, but that instead of having created six million jobs, Trump, he could have created seven million by now. But he just created six because of the, of the trade war. It might, in 2020, we're at a risk of having a recession in late 2020, just when the November election happens because of the trade war. However, the, the same report by Moody's Analytica says that if the, if the tariffs were lifted with China immediately, the economy would boom in 2020 faster than it did this year. So I think it's politically convenient to do, to do that, but at the same time, I think that we need to hold China accountable. I just think that unilateral tariffs from America are not going to make China change its behavior because America is not, unfortunately, not big enough anymore for China uh, to make it change its behavior. Uh, it's not, you know, America only represents 10% of Chinese exports. Uh, so that's definitely not enough for, for China to change its behavior. So either Trump leaves the tariffs right now or, or he finds a new way to, to hold China accountable without, without hurting America's economy. And then lastly, on China, do you think China is trying to wait it out to see how 2020 shakes out to see if they get a better, you know, more favorable deal from a Democratic president? A oh, 100%. President? 100%. No, I'm, sure, I'm sure they are. <laughs> So is it something where Trump just has to keep applying pressure and keep, you know, putting their feet to the fire to try to get a deal done? Yeah, he really needs to get a deal done, even if it means backing down and saying that uh, that the trade war didn't work or just declaring victory and moving on, because, unfortunately, China is not a democracy, and because they're not a democracy, they have no way where the, the suffering of the people because of the tariffs in China, which they are suffering, the economy is suffering a lot, uh, that's not going to change Xi Jinping's behavior. Xi Jinping is rich, he is corrupt, politically connected like everybody else in the Chinese Communist Party. So they, they're not hurt by the tariffs, and they're the decision makers, not the, the poor Chinese people. Now, it, it, I think it's funny, kind of, and, and I think it's a good, it's a good note to wrap it up. Is Trump backing down and saying that you know we take a loss? Not, not really his strong point. Is backing down, right? Can you repeat that? I'm, I'm like, I'm just saying Trump backing down in something and admitting that you know admitting a loss is not really his strong point. And saying that we we didn't win the trade war. It think, is not. I don't think we'll be seeing it that anytime soon. That's why he he needs to play smart. Uh, I think that, you know, Xi Jinping also wants to stop the trade war, uh, even though it's not affecting him personally. It's, you know, everybody has a, a little bit of concern about the Chinese economy. The stock market also is suffering for them. So uh, Trump really needs to find a way to just make a deal or, or at least a ceasefire in the trade war with, with Xi Jinping, uh, perhaps not just declare defeat, obviously, because perhaps that might sound bad, but, but there's always a way to spin it in which uh, the American economy uh, benefits. And, and, and I know President Trump wants to keep the economy booming, and if that's his main concern, he needs to do it. Right, yeah, and, and that's his, to me, that's his, you know, golden ticket, I feel, a re-election. Keep the economy where it's at and keep it strong, because then when he runs on that and just sees that the Democrats are running on Trump is corrupt, you know, I think... The people who, you know, are clear-headed can see, like, there's a lot of, you know, gaslighting happening on one side or the other. But I think in 2020, it's going to be interesting. Uh, 
Real quick, who do you think is the, is the 2020 nominee? Do you think it's going to be Elizabeth Warren now that Biden's kind of had his situation with Ukraine and Bernie's his health care? Do you see someone else? I don't think that, that I'm ready to make a, a, a prediction. I think things can change. Um, I hope, you know, for the future of the country that they don't nominate Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. I think Joe Biden is the... Joe Biden and Andrew Yang are the least damaging candidates in the Democratic field. I wouldn't support them, but I don't think they would be terrible presidents, unlike Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Right. And then let Trump win in 2020, yes or no? I would bet yes. <laughs> I would bet yes. I, I do. Uh, and, and honestly, I, I do have to agree. Um, I, I think that clearer heads will prevail when push comes to shove. And once they see that the state of the United States of America is in such great shape that all of this fluff that's going on behind the scenes, it, it really is nothing. But based, like you said, the majority of Americans, the people here, are focused on their day-to-day lives and things going on that Trump tweeting a funny picture or a meme or anything like that, it doesn't affect them one bit. They just want to know, are their families going to be fed? Is their bank account going to have money in it? And is nobody going to be telling them what to do? And I think that when people get to that point where it's a sort of Warren versus Trump and it's kind of a vote for it's a vote for socialism or Donald Trump, I think a lot of people are going to say, I don't want socialism because of all the terrors that it does. And I think in 2020... I don't know why hunts us all alone. And the Indian uh, gas that she had is going to come back at her. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I honestly can't... It, it, it's, you know, when Trump had the whole, you know, Pocahontas thing and she had the um, Native American, the, um, the, the heritage test, I'm sorry, her, uh, her you know, I thought that that was going to be the end of her candidacy. And it's like that happened so fast and it wrapped up within a week. And it seems that, you know, obviously with a lot of these candidates, it seems like a lot of them, a lot of things are bouncing off, but I think the closer we get to the election, the more that things are going to be sticking and more things that are going to be exposed. Like you said, when the gaps start happening one-on-one, they're going to become more apparent and more harmful in the long run. I completely agree with you, JP. Well, Daniel, I really appreciate you joining us. This was, uh, you know, a great, you know, uh, uh, conversation. I really enjoyed it, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. I definitely think our viewers are going to... Uh, uh, want to check this out, definitely uh, tweet out everything. Uh, his Twitter is Daniel D. Martino. I Daniel D. Martino. Tweet all that out. And his website is DanielDMartino.com. He is a U.S. spokesman of Vince Venezuela and a contributor for Young Voices. Daniel, we really appreciate you joining the show, man, and uh, we hope to have you back one day. Thank you so much, Rufi. I enjoyed it a lot. All right, and you have a great night. Thank you. You too. Bye.